appreciate you being here. I know it's costly, but uh, sometime together, even if it's just little bits and pieces, to be able to enjoy each other, enjoy some stories, build our faith up. It's pretty brutal out there right now. Any businessman or woman will tell you uh, it's pretty brutal out there right now. Any uh, person who's in the healthcare profession, anyone in education, uh, certainly we who are in pastoral ministries will tell you it's pretty brutal out there. I don't know how people, and this is honestly no judgment call, it's an honest question as a fellow human being, how staying at home watching an evening of Netflix is superior to this. Um, hey, I've got my show I'm watching. I am super ready to go home, grab a bowl of soup with my wife of 40 years and uh, flick on our Amazon Prime or Netflix or Hulu or whatever and grab our show, of course. But there is something exquisite about being together and accounting for something. We've been going through the, the Gospel of Mark. It's an exquisite gospel, 16 short chapters and uh, a brief step back to go forward commonly assumed that John Mark was the author of the book and um, I was uh, watching a talk by a British theologian called David Pawson this week and he made some interesting observations we don't know if they're true or not we do know that uh, John Mark was the PA he was uh, the, the help to both Barnabas who was a family member to Paul and to Peter. So he was close in in the second wave of leadership. In fact, one person suggested his name was actually Marcus, which means that he had a Latin in the family. There was Roman influence in the family. And so David said, which is interesting, that uh, John Mark was probably Peter's interpreter in Rome because he could speak Latin. We know that Peter was uneducated and uh, that he translated for Peter and he said, David did, probably the, the, the people came to him and said, listen man, you've, you've translated for him, you've interpreted for him, can you now just write down everything you remember about what Peter preached? And that's why Peter's styles, the, the simplicity of it all, it's, it's, it's action word. It's not these long rambling uh, Sermon on the Mount type gospel. It's the short, sharp storytelling. Let's get to the point. Let's not mess around. And I thought David's arguments were pretty compelling. We've seen in the book there are three major divisions. Why is this important to you? Well, it makes reading fun. When you look at the book and you suddenly find the author's architecture, it makes for a lot of fun. The first eight chapters are really, who is this Jesus? Is what seems to be the prevailing question. Who's this guy? A question we all ask, a helpful question, especially when you're embarking on an early Jesus journey or a doubting Jesus journey. And we all have those moments. The second from the middle part of chapter 8 to 10 is what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? Or he, he takes us on the way, that, that sense of discipleship with him being the Messiah. And then, and I'm getting all this from the clever people, the Bible Project, Verses 11 through to 16, how Jesus became king. Now, those are all beautiful little academic nerdy points. But you know what is particularly interesting as I was doing some fresh reading and research this week is in all three of those spaces, this is what is said. The first one, in Jesus' baptism, 
The father says, you are my beloved son. If I could inject anything into you, if my kind of spiritual vaccine, sorry the anti-vaxxers, but if I could offer you a spiritual vaccine, this would be the one I would put into you. It's the one that has kept me sane in 44 years of walking with Jesus. You are my beloved son. As he said it over Jesus in the waters of baptism, he said it over me as an 18-year-old brand new rookie believer living with the chaos and the curiosity of a cultural Christianity, but one that I was discovering that it was no way like the one I'd known. Then the second part, in it, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus went to the top of a mountain, and He took two of His mates with Him, and there He encountered the Father's blessing, and the same thing was said, This is my beloved Son. And then the third time on the cross, and this is interesting, the centurion in the dark said, Surely this man is the Son of God. Why does John, Mark, repeat this same thing? Because I think it's imperative for us to have that insulated in our soul. You know I love being a dad, both biologically and spiritually. And you know that I've walked through kids and many of you and others through life's journeys, the vulnerabilities, the uncertainties, the hard times, the good times, the celebrations like weddings for the couple in the frontier, if you haven't yet heard. But there is something beautiful that is established here. This is my beloved son. You are my beloved son. And surely this man is the son of God. What a, what a remarkable thing. You know, I know the 20s normally are times of exploration of the world out there and you wrestling with the instinct of your faith. And that's absolutely fine if this is settled. You are my beloved son or daughter. Now what I'm going to do with this passage tonight, Mark 11, is work backwards. So open your Bibles if you don't mind. I'm going to read the last uh, six verses and then we're going to work backwards. Now. A quick disclaimer to this is that Dana was going to teach this passage and then she was ill. And so I gave her the option to preach tonight, but she thought it would be a little much being the one-man band of leading worship, which she'll do in just a moment with Caitlin and Haley, and preach and carry a little baby. It was maybe just a tad too much. So unfortunately, you haven't got her, you've got me. From verse 27. They, the disciples, arrived again in Jerusalem. That's Mark chapter 11. And they arrived in Jerusalem. It's actually a beautiful thing. If you ever get to Israel to go and walk. So I'm not mystical about those places. In fact, some of the places I found most spiritually offensive were kind of classic Christian places to visit in Israel. Um, I actually wanted to set up a tour to visit all the pubs Jesus visited. But I was told there wouldn't be too many takers, so I cancelled my travel company. Jesus was walking in the temple courts. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority, by what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Now Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven? Or men, tell me. They discussed it amongst themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, 
for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Now, two things. Firstly, remember this, the clock is ticking. Jesus is getting out of Dodge. He's got a cross to face. He's got a tomb to fill. He's got an ascension to complete. And he knows that he's got 12 vulnerable men, soon to be 11, very vulnerable, uncertain men who are going to take on this global assignment. And I think every moment matters. We can't just read these as interesting little pieces, filling in a space on a collection of books called the Bible. This is a master, a rabbi, a teacher, a coach, a redeemer, a savior, who is focused intently on thinking, how can I show these boys what's next for them? I think that's absolutely imperative. Secondly, please understand this whole chapter, I think, and I got this from Dana and I think she's right, deals with the conversation of authority. Let me explain. We moved here from South Africa in 1996. We had just come out of the war when, uh, uh, for the freedom, Free Mandela and all that went with that. Amazing times, tough times, brutal times. And um, unfortunately, because of white government, um, all institutions were governed by white men. And most of the institutions were ungodly in that it was not driven by um, righteous laws and rules. It was not an integrated social system. Everyone was not able to benefit economically, equally, etc., etc. And so government was despised. The police force was feared and hated. The army was viewed with great displeasure. Every institutional form was disrespected. Now I say all of that because August 96, we land from South Africa to take on leadership of that church in Walnut. And I was stunned, and I'm not using that word dramatically, I was stunned by the respect that people had for the police, believe it or not. For some of you that would be unbelievably ridiculous, but I was astounded. I remember there was a young guy in our church who got into the CHP, California Highway Patrol training. I think there was something like 3,000 applicants and 120 were chosen, something. I mean, it was a moment of high celebration for the church. I thought, oh, that's very different. Wow. Would never happen in South Africa. I was driving out on the 61 day and this cop starts swerving across the road. Now, remember, I know nothing. My only knowledge of America are movies. So I see a cop start swerving across the road and I see cars pulling up. Now my mind, sorry, something's feeding back. It's, it feels a bit bouncy. And, and my mind is you don't really respect the cops. You don't really honor them. You don't, whatever. And now the cops, everyone's slowing down and giving, honoring the cop. I mean, I'm ready to zoot past him because there's a gap. There are two empty lanes. Let's go past him, you see. I soon realized that's not what you're supposed to do. You don't grab the moment because growing up in Africa, that's what you do. You grab, you kind of carpe deum, you seize the day. And uh, in my conversations with people, it soon became apparent that there is incredible authority in the badge. Respect, honor, appreciation, gratitude that I just did not know in 
South Africa. See, authority is a rather exquisite notion. And I want to take just a few moments now and talk around authority, if you don't mind. And then we're going to dive into the three incidents of authority. And hopefully it will be very helpful for you. Dana said this, and I cut and pasted this from her notes because I couldn't say it as well. Verse 28 of chapter 11. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? She wrote, the Greek word here is exthusia, which means the freedom to act or to determine or to command. You see, the religious leaders and priests of the day had gone to special schools from childhood. They'd been trained in the Torah. In fact, John Mark reminded us, they would learn the Torah by word. They could dictate the Torah. They had done years of apprenticeship and finally at a mature age like me, they would officially be given titles and the authority to teach, to determine, to judge and to lead. Jesus, however, had none of these. He pops up at 30 without any formal training, no rabbinical certifications, and yet he is preaching, healing, commanding demons, forgiving sins, challenging the system as thousands of followers, devote disciples, and so understandably, the Pharisees want to know, how come? How come? How come you're a rabbi and you're 30 and you're not 50? How come you've got thousands of disciples and followers and we hardly have any? How come when you speak, something else happens? How come when you deal in the demonic world, something else happens? You see, folks, there is an, there is an authority that is available to us when something else happens. In South Africa, as a marriage officer, when I did a wedding, the couple did not have to go to a court of law. I was the official representative of the government. And so part of my uh, ceremony, I would say something like this. I would say, in all the authority vested in me, I now declare you husband and wife. It was a profound moment. I had to write an exam for it. I had to uh, have a special book which they filled out, which I represented to government etc etc there is something beautiful about authority now Max Weber the sociologist says and this was some years ago wrote of three kinds of authority the first he said is traditional authority forgive me for being a little bit nerdy here but I think it will help just bear with me traditional authority is the power of authority legitimized by respect of long-established cultural practices customs Authority that comes with customs and habits and social structures, like family. That's a traditional authority. The second, Weber argues, is charismatic authority. The authority which is derived from leaders that have a higher authority, power or motivation. The charismatic personality. But thirdly, he says, legal relational authority, which is the legitimacy of formal rules set by the state. So there's the cop the dad and there is Gogo which is the Zulu word for granny granny has an authority because when granny says eat we eat when granny says come to my house we go to my house that's traditional authority are you with me now unfortunately you who are slightly younger or slightly more than slightly younger than me 
have an issue with authority. So I asked some of the younger people who, whose perspectives I respect to explain to me what's the relationship between the millennial and authority define. That was my great question. Millennials, authority, define. Here's what one said. For authority, Charles Taylor, who's a philosopher's thing, there is a shift away from the culture of authority to the culture of authenticity. That's a big moment. The philosopher that drove the idea that we are moving away from the culture of authority to the culture of authenticity. Authority is best understood as access to reality that enables the younger or less mature people to live in reality and thrive. That's what he argues. Authority used to be external in God and scripture, the church, tradition, your body or gender or family role. But now, he argues, it's internal, the authentic self. Any form of external authority, God, Bible, church, so sexual norms, even your body is perceived as a barrier. To expressing your authentic self and therefore a bondage to happiness and to the fulfillment of life. Wow. Wow. So there is a major shift dear friends when you hear, many of you hear the word authority, you are not necessarily hearing an external investment of authority to do you good. It is now an internal authority which is the authentic self. And therefore, any external authority, God, Bible, church, sexual norms, your body, etc., 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 can be a hindrance or a barrier to your authentic self. Quote number two. Hi, Chris. I cut and paste it. I think millennials have such a hard time trusting authority because I think we've seen a lot of the ugly in authority because of how the news is communicated. Also, I think we all have so much access to information in the digital age, so we feel like we have to verify everything before we can trust it. If you cannot prove after a few incidences, sorry, if you prove correct after a few instances, I think we will have an easier time accepting the leader, but it usually takes time. Cancel culture has encouraged quick rejection, so I think that plays into it. Now, I wish the third quote I could read in length because it is long, but I cannot. So I'm going to quote just a section. Person number three, uno, dos, tres. When I think of millennials and authority, I think a large shift in thinking was that respect typically needs to be earned rather than assumed. I think older generations think younger people are disrespectful for this. But to millennials, it is almost a protective measure. Millennials also value being seen and heard in that they want to be collaborative and valued for by the authorities. Work environments that highlight these things tend to attract and retain millennials well. Millennials are driven by social issues, climate change, having a job they're passionate about, being free. I think these are really good things and balance out our society and priorities, but some see it as losing American values. Now, all of these are very, very helpful. Here is my appeal. To those of you who are a little older than I am, our understanding of authority is more hierarchical and top-down. 
Those who are younger see authority more as um, on an equilibrium, that everyone's equal, everyone's voice is important and essential, and therefore no one should be higher or above anyone else. Can I argue that actually we have to adopt a biblical understanding of authority, both for yourself and for those relationships that you have, the ben that you're the beneficiary of. Jesus had authority. These people, the Jewish leaders, sensed it, they saw it, and they despised it. I think partly because they were curious, partly because they were jealous, and partly because they were envious. He didn't have all the credentials, but there was something upon his life. Now, I've rambled quickly to get through some of the nerdy pieces. I want you, please, to understand the power of authority. Be careful in your wrestle with authority that you don't deconstruct that out of your life. There are many millennial Christians who are superiorly weak. That was an interesting word. Weak. Because in throwing authority out, you've actually weakened yourself in your spiritual combat, in your spiritual partnership. <laughs> Give me such a fright. See, that's God confirming it. <laughs> Think for a moment of authority in your life. A dad who may have abused it or may have been amazing. A school teacher who may be highly empowering or highly dismissive. An experience you have with the authorities, a policeman or some other you know, politician or some city structure or whatever the case may be. I want to ask all of us to submit ourselves afresh to divine scrutiny. This is not a political moment. This is not a social moment first and foremost. It's, it's explaining my relationship and your relationship with God and what it means to be in Christ. There is something about a quiet authority that we have that we don't have to fight about. We don't have to get angry about We don't have to get up the blood vessels in our necks sticking out in our forehead sticking out because there is an understanding that being in Christ, we have authority. I've just finished reading a book called The Tenth Parallel. It's written by an Episcopalian pastor's daughter. I don't even know if she's a Christian. She doesn't know if she's a Christian. But it's the tenth parallel that runs from Africa all the way to the Middle East, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines. And it's where Islam and Christianity meet. And it's an endless war. Has been for hundreds of years. On that tenth parallel. And she was describing as an author, not as a Christian, some of that conflict and some of the personalities. And I was stunned by a particular story. I'm buying time. Um, I was stunned by a particular story of this missionary couple who were taken captive by an Al-Qaeda crew in the Philippines. They nearly died, they were marched, they were mercilessly treated, but the leader of the organization tried to beat the husband into submission. All that he kept saying to them is, you just say there's only one God and His name is Allah, and that's it, and you will, you will live. And the wife who survived it, the husband did not. But the wife who survived it said her husband just sat quietly 
every time without fear, without intimidation, without being overwhelmed, without getting angry, without shouting at them. Sometimes they had no water, sometimes they had no food, they certainly had no cleanliness or ablution. They were, it was designed to wear them down, but the husband sat with quiet authority and kept preaching the gospel to this man. And this man said, you don't understand. You don't understand. If you only just say there's one God and His name's Allah, you will live. The husband would look at him and say, you do not hold the power of life and death. My God holds that. You can't touch me. But let me tell you about my Jesus. And the man would get so furious. See, there is an authority that we carry in Christ and that these leaders, the elders and the chief priests and the um, Sadducees, the teachers of the law, just couldn't get it. What is it that you have? Now there are three, and I'll move quickly. There are three moments in this beautiful, beautiful chapter in which authority is exercised. Quickly, let's look at them. Have, has anyone been following me time-wise? Okay. The first is the triumphal entry. And they approached Jerusalem, verse 1, and they came to Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent the disciples out into, and we know the story, they found the, the, the colt, the, um, the donkey, and uh, he was brought to Jesus. And the people said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Now, let's put it in its context. Our history, my history brain nerded out today. So I went and had a look at how did the generals, the victorious generals come into town after their victories. Um, Caesar being a case in point, Pompey being a case in point, Marcus Aurelius being a case in point. And it went something like this. The submission would be, can I come into town with my legion? And the Senate would sit down and agree to do it. And then... I'll really shrink it down because it's a beautiful pomp and circumstance. They would all be on the edge of town and the Senate and the leaders of the city would walk first and the people would line the streets and they would throw their pebble, their, their petals, and they would wave their banners and the Senate would walk full of pomp, their robes blowing in the wind and then behind them would be the slaves, those who had been captive, especially if there was royalty. And they would either be put in cages or in chains and they would be taken behind the Senate as everyone was kind of blowing kisses and there'd be bands playing and, and there would be the, the dancers dancing and then <clears throat> the general would come in a chariot and there'd normally be three horses, two, three, sometimes four horses, white st stallions that would pull the chariot and he would have a slave standing next to him and the slave would have a crown being held over his head and uh, whispering to them the whole time, you are not a God, you are just a man. You are not a God, you are just a man as the crown hovered above his head. Then came his legions marching in such pomp and circumstance with, with all the benefits, singing their songs, their war songs. And then behind that would come their family and the booty, everything that they won, looting, everything that they were bringing back into Rome was brought along. Now what a counter statement. The King of Kings sought not the approval of men to come into the city, nor the power of a chariot, nor a man-made crown, but he came sitting on a donkey humbly walking into 
town. And the people sang their songs because you see, no one had to create a pomp and circumstance. Worship explodes when we understand the true, humble, suffering King of Kings. There is an authority in that. If you do not know how to worship, and I say this with no judgment, it's because you don't know the suffering Messiah. Kids knew. Why didn't the kings just stop and say, who's this guy? You know, kids, kids are horribly honest. They lack the social skills. They say the darndest things. Why didn't they just stop and say, why are we doing this to a guy sitting on a donkey? Isn't he supposed to have a chariot? Aren't there supposed to be legions of soldiers behind them? Aren't there supposed to be slaves in front of him? But the authority that is there intrinsically because of what the father gave him created a response by these young uns and the woman and not only women and children, but the men who were saying, Hosanna, glory, because they saw something that the authority exposed to them. Send me, Chris, I really struggle with my worship. Yep, I get it. Your, the, the prayer is a simple prayer. Let me see who you, for you who you really are. Not the practice of worship, not the five steps of worship. This isn't going to a jazz dance and learning how to do the rumba. This is simply an innate revelation of the Messiah for who He really is. The great suffering King who will soon be on the cross, His ultimate throne, and then rise to be with His heavenly Father reconciled in eternity. That's what's profound about this passage. The true triumphal entrance of a true king who is a God or is God, should I say. Does that make sense to you? And I think our response to this is, God, let me see who you for who you really are. Number two, the temple. I'm being brief because I must land. The temple. Jesus enters the temple and... He began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts as he taught them. He said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. What does that mean to us? What does that mean to us? 2,000 years ago, Jesus enters the outer court, turns over the tables, when they were selling, what were they selling? Well, they were selling sacrifices that, that people could come and buy their dove or their lamb or whatever that they could have sacrificed. There's a whole little, little, little kind of urban industry being developed there. So why is Jesus so freaked out? Remember the story in Acts chapter 8 of the eunuch. The story goes very briefly like this. Philip is in Samaria. He is having this incredible series of meetings. The power of God is there. There's healing and deliverance and signs and wonders. All sorts of amazing things happen. And then God says to him, Philip, I need you to go somewhere. And God moves him in the blink of an eye, literally. And he, and he opens his eyes. And it must have been a super bummer. Because suddenly he's on this dusty road. There's a cart and a procession just ahead of him. And I'm sure he, he looked around. It was African. He must have looked around thinking, what on earth am I doing here? And as he walks up to the cot, there's a eunuch. And this is super embarrassing because you don't hang out with eunuchs. 
who's reading Isaiah 53. And Philip says, well, this must be the guy. And he says, what are you reading, sir? And he says, Isaiah 53. And he says, you know what you're reading? He said, well, how can I understand if no one teaches me? Philip jumps up onto the wagon with him and explains it to him. Now, beautiful story. But you know which part of the story I really like is the unwritten part. Commentators say it probably took him six months to get there. Not six minutes. Not six miles. Not mm, Sunday afternoon. Oh, I don't know. Six months. Now that's pretty profound to travel six months to get to a gathering. But what's even more amazing is as a eunuch, according to Deuteronomy 23.1, he is not allowed to be in the outer courts because he was not fully formed as a man. So he traveled for six months to stand outside of the building and watch everyone else worship at the very place Jesus cleared the temple out because he said this part is for all nations. My dear friends, the simple application of this section is the authority we need to exact over every distraction, every hindrance and every interruption that keeps us from mission and intimacy with God. I guess one day someone set up a little stall and sold a few doves, maybe a kid, and, and, and got a few bucks for it. And then someone said, whoa, that's a pretty cool gig. I'm going to do the same, set up a table and sold some other pigeons a little bit cheaper. And then someone came and said, well, there are people who want lambs. We're going to sell a few lambs here. And pretty soon what became as a functional investment interruption into the outer courts which were designed for the worship of the Gentiles now became a throbbing, thriving business, and it was no more about all nations finding Yahweh. It was now about the practice of business. Here's my, honestly, my humble suggestion. Jesus was not anti-market economy, but he was anti-anything, anything that distracts us or hinders us or interrupts the intimacy that we can have with God and our mission to others. What is it for you and for me? What's that little thing, that little edge of the wedge that's just snuck in there a little bit? I mean, ah, it's not a big thing. But it never remains passive or pauses. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger or it disappears. And Jesus walks in in the most dramatic way and he flips the tables. He didn't come alongside them and whisper, I think you should give this up. He flipped the tables one after the other. I think his disciples said, what's, gone, what's hit this guy? Does he know we're going to get killed for this? All these businessmen are going to get their mafia hit teams to come and take us out. And he said, I will not allow the slightest thing to hinder. That second scotch, that third smoke, that one night we miss because we're going to hang out with mates that leads to another night and another night. I know they're silly examples. Forgive me. They're the best I have right now. Do you feel the heart of Jesus for the Ethiopian eunuch who came but a few months later Clear this 
because the Gentiles want to find out about Yahweh. Lastly, the mountain. Two passages of scripture which I will quickly glue together. Authority in the city, authority in the temple, and now authority in the mountain. The next day Jesus, um, where am I? They were leaving Bethany. Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to, to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, and it was not the season for figs. But he said to the tree, may no one ever eat from fruit from you again. The next morning, Jesus, uh, here we go. Rabbi Peter said, the fig tree is withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask. Oh my gosh, look at the time. Uh, ask and you shall receive. Okay, it's getting dark. I apologize. Please try and be here early so we can start at 4. It does push us a little late when we start at 4.15, 4.20. You know, I have a family member who got divorced at 62 after decades in ministry. Her, and her husband made no provision for being, for being older. And I sat down with her and I said to her, well, what's going to happen? And she looked at me with very impassioned eyes and she said this. Now, what, this is what she could have said to me. My husband was a jerk. How can God let this happen to me? I'm such a victim. I'm 62, no marriage, no house, no car, no money. Or the fig tree's dead. But God, you know, I'm not a fan of the word of faith theology. Some of the excesses are really, really unhelpful. But as I looked at this family member with big eyes and tears in her eyes, she said this. She said, but I have a calling. She said, God has anointed me. She says, I have prophetic promises over my life. She refused to look at a fig tree that was not bearing fruit. She turned her back and this is what Jesus was saying. Look to that mountain. Look to that obstacle and that hurdle that lies before you. And I want you to speak to that mountain. Two years later, without any advertising, without charging for one course or for one person that she sees and she says many people every day that she prays over and ministers over she has seen the hand of God provide over and over and over again in fact when we were back in South Africa a couple of years ago for my birthday she gave me $500 I said what are you doing you have nothing and those big eyes, she said, but God's my provision. Don't you understand that? See, folks, authority, when we understand it, is not hierarchical and it's not linear. It's in Christ. And what I think Jesus is preparing his disciples for 
is the understanding is you're going to face some pretty key obstacles in the city, in the temples, and in the mountaintops. You're going to have to overcome some things. And if you curl up into a corner or you let hindrances get in the way, the thin edge of the wedge, you will not do what it is I need you to do. The gospel, I close, changes us if we let it. If we acknowledge our sins, our brokenness, our limitations and our weaknesses, and we let the Spirit of God come in, there is a thing which replaces it, and that's the beauty and the wonder of the authority of Christ. Can I have the worship team, please? I don't know what this talk does to you. I've really wrestled with this, I have to tell you. This has not been an easy week's preparation. It's been a very, very difficult passage to work with. But when we let our deepest inner longing be to be in Christ, a surrendered life soon becomes a life of triumph, a life of devotion, and a life of the impossible. The city, the temple, and the mountain. Triumph, devotion, and the impossible. I want to ask this of you. You're weak, uncertain, vulnerable. Yep, that happens to all of us. But what this text promises is an authority that gets the elders, the chief priests, and the leaders to sit up and say, by what authority? What authority do you live this life? And when we hand over to God those weaknesses, vulnerabilities, uncertainties, and sins, we don't let the thin edge of the wedge come in. And authority begins to rise, rise up inside of us. When that missionary man looked at that Al-Qaeda operative, as he shouted at him, threatened him with his life, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to rape your wife, everything, he just sat there calmly. By what authority? You have no authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Now go, and go and do what it is I've asked you to do. If you've got a city, I'll lead you in triumphantly. If you've got a temple, we'll remove every obstacle. If you've got a mountain, we'll throw it into the sea. Would you stand with me, please? Thank you for being so gracious. I'm sorry it went a little long. <laughs> Would you open your hands up just like this? Father, as we come to a few minutes of worship with you, I think of the Ethiopian eunuch that drove six months to see worship that he could not even participate in. Such was his hunger. We want to lift our hearts to you in worship. Deep calls to deep. Call us in. Call us into your intimate place. And let us sing our songs of praise to you. As I was out praying this morning, I had a really good prayer time actually. 
I did feel like God wants to remove those hindrances. That little pigeon stall that was set up that seemed so innocuous. That little thing in your life that seemed so good. It's actually a really good idea. But pretty soon it became a whole moral economy that's taking up your life, your attention, your thoughts. No longer is devotion to Christ the primary passion. Man, is God good knocking on the door of your heart tonight. We will have a people up here that will pray for you if you want prayer. But let's worship Him who is so worthy of our worship.